In the U.S., there's a long history of newspapers emerging to fill immigrants' desires to see stories about their community and culture. In this episode, I'll speak with Snigda Sur, founder and CEO of The Joggernaut, a media company focused on the U.S.-South Asian diaspora, whose stories have been neglected by traditional news outlets. With an MBA from Harvard Business School and a degree from Yale, Snigda worked at McKinsey in media-focused venture capital and private equity before she launched The Joggernaut in 2019. With backing from the likes of Y Combinator and Precursor Ventures, The Joggernaut has attracted a loyal subscriber base that craves her smart South Asian stories and news. We'll discuss the genesis of her media company, how she convinced savvy investors there was a market overlooked by mainstream publications, what's behind the name, and what lessons we can learn from her experience. Snigda, welcome to our podcast series. Thanks so much for having me on New York Tech. I want to get started, and normally we'd go right into your background, but I just want our listeners to hear that you and I met on March 2nd when I attended the Q&A you did with Indra Nui, the former PepsiCo CEO. And I got there early, we spoke, and you were kind enough to agree to do the interview. And by the time the event started, the room was overflowing. People around me were primarily South Asian, millennials, doctors, students, professionals. And it struck me that here is this young lady in Snigda who has started a publication for a community that had been so long overlooked. And I was shocked by it. So I want to frame that so as we talk about it, and we'll get into this a little later, that the community is enormous, successful, making a real impact in our country, in the United States. Let's talk about your background and the genesis of your media company, The Joggernaut. Yeah, thanks so much. So first of all, what you noted, I think what's really interesting is that our community is often big people say this, we are often held up as a model minority myth. Look at how successful this community is. Look at how well they're doing. I just have to flag that, you know, we were kind of selected for that, right? When you think about immigration history in the United States, for the longest time, the most discriminated against immigrants into the United States were Asian Americans from multiple Asian countries. And so when they were finally kind of let in without a quota in 1965, it was very much under the restriction that they have to be super educated, they have to have a professional degree and all of that, which is why we are so successful. And what I'm trying to argue is in terms of why we created the Juggernaut is, in a way, even if we weren't successful, our stories deserve to be told. Because we have actually been part of American history, some say, since as early as the 1600s. But if you were to actually look at American records, you'll rarely hear our stories. You'll rarely hear the stories of Asian Americans. And we're still, you know, to this day, tokenized. So that's one of the reasons we started it. And in terms of my background, I was born in India, and I moved to the U.S. when I was three. And growing up, I experienced this kind of bifurcation firsthand where in school, many people didn't really know. I grew up actually partly in the Bronx, in Pelham Bay Park, and then in Queens. So in school growing up, especially in the Bronx specifically, like many people didn't know what I was. I just didn't look like any of the other kids. When I went to Queens, I definitely saw more Asian Americans. But what you read and learned about in school was so different from what you heard from your parents at home. And so that was one of the first things I always noticed was like so much of what I'm learning in class has a very different history or there's so much more at home that I'm learning. And I think you start noticing as you get older and older, like for example, Hmm. in global history class, I think they mentioned... South Asian history and Indian history, and they talk about this practice called like sati, right? Which is when certain regions in India, women would self-immolate um, after their husband died. And I remember going home to my mom and be like, what is sati? Does this happen in our family? And she was like, 
so confused of all the things that the U.S. history, sorry, the global history class is talking about. It was this. And I think that I would say many Indian Americans and South Asian Americans grew up like with these moments where we were just very confused what we were learning versus what we knew at home. Let's talk about South Asia. And South Asia includes India, Pakistan, Nepal, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka. I'm probably leaving out a couple of countries. And it's a region of the world that has nearly 2 billion people in its population. When I looked up South Asians living in the United States, the number somewhere approaching 6 million people, and South Asians living in the United States, typically 75% of them are born outside the U.S. So there's this deep abiding connection with the home country and the connection with everything from culture and the people and the fabric of those communities. So let's sort of roll that in if we could to talk about why it was so important to create the juggernaut and what you saw missing in the marketplace? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Let's go back to the history of media for a second, which is if you look at the history of media in New York City, which is such a thriving city, from the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, there used to be multiple newspapers and media companies and communities. You'd have Italian-American papers in Italian. You'd have Italian-American papers in English. You'd have German-American papers and Haitian-American papers, all of that slowly started dying off when mainstream publications started just accumulating more assets. And when I say mainstream publications, you can think like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, or the Washington Post. And many of these assets were held and concentrated in the hands of very old New York or Washington, D.C., right? They weren't held by immigrant families by any means. They were held by really old families. If anybody watches Succession, you have an example of what that means. And many, even if they are immigrants, they happen to be of the dominant variety, right? These families are essentially white. And so when you think about that, and you think about what they know and the things that they're familiar with, right? We all are telling the stories we're familiar with. And the only way to kind of counter the very human intuition is to make sure you stack up your teams to be very diverse. I can tell you, you can look at the heads of these publications that Many of them are not diverse. And even if they are, they are targeting a population that is very, quote unquote, mainstream, which means that when the editor is deciding, do I write this small story about, you know, something specifically happening on St. Patrick's Day? For example, our story today was on how there's an Indian family that actually provides the chemical dyes for Chicago turning its river emerald green. And I thought that was such a fun story. And I don't think you'll see that story on the New York Times. I don't think you'll see that story in the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal. They just have men, much bigger fish to fry, frankly, to reach much bigger audience. It's kind of what I call, I've said this before, the ninja model, right? You right. can be a Coke or a Pepsi, but you also need what you call like a Red Bull. Red Bull is going after a very specific audience, and Coke and Pepsi can never go after that same audience because it's a tyranny of size. They have to kind of reach a certain profit level, they have to reach a certain audience level to make their entire business model work. When we did have Indra Nui, she said, Pepsi is actually a company about cents. It's not even a company about you know dollars. It's really about cents because it's a crazy scale they're at. Right. And so when you think about it that way, that's one of the reasons. There's no like profit incentives. There's no kind of really incentive for some of these companies to be as focused as we can be because we know what our community needs. We're going after hopefully depth and nuance and deep connection with our community. You know, I read today's issue. I'm a subscriber now, by the way. Welcome to the family. Thank you. Thank you. And the story on Chemworld, which is the company that makes the dyes that turn the Chicago River green, was the lead story you put in today. Smart. Today is St. Patrick's Day, March 17th. And then there were so many other stories. And one that struck me was there was a story about a Bangladeshi structural engineer 
behind so many iconic skyscrapers in the city of Chicago, something I never would have seen that story anywhere else. But what it does is it, it enriches my knowledge base. And as one, as I started to say earlier, that I was sort of like the unicorn in the room when you had that Q&A. In fact, you had asked me, you know, so how did you hear about us? I had to be honest that it was a young lady that works with me on the podcast, Petra Shantaraga, who said, you really ought to interview this woman, Snigda, who's got this remarkable publication. So that's how I found out about you. But for anyone listening out there, you know, any of these publications, and I really recommend The Joggernaut, if you really want to understand what the South Asian community is all about. It was a fascinating read today. And I think that's what you're talking about here in terms about you're not going to see these types of stories in mainstream media. I love that you pointed out that Chicago story and Sazlur Rahman Khan. That's one of my favorite stories. And I agree with you. You know, one of the things you also pointed out is we hopefully are building a, I call it a big tent. We're very inclusive. Everybody is welcome. We write our stories in a way that anybody can enter the world and understand. And to your point, like maybe learn something new that they wouldn't find by reading their usual kind of places or destinations. What I love about that story of Fazer Rahman Khan is he's actually the structural engineer behind every single tall building you see today. Basically, almost every single one right. that was built after his era. He basically invented what it meant to go that tall. And he was inspired going back to the multiculturalism of this country. He was originally from near Dhaka, what is now Bangladesh, but back then was more part of the undivided India. And he talks about how he doesn't know exactly how he got the idea, but he always felt like he was a building. He felt like he was the building and he was like swaying <laughs> with the building. And he never grew up with tall structures, but he always remembered, you know, one, obviously this could be a little bit hyperbolized post facto, but he always remembered how strong bamboo stalks were and how they were circular and how they were tightly bound together. And that kind of was this inspiration for reimagining new things. And we think about that. That's really what makes, I think, America such a special place because you get all these people from all these perspectives in one place who are adding their diverse and unique experiences to the canon and making magic happen. That story was just amazing. And I didn't know that until we dove deeper into that. I was reflecting as I was reading about your publication, and we'll talk about how you came up with the Joggernaut in a second. But I think I saw in one of the articles, or maybe it was one of the postings on one of the investment firms that's backing your company, the size of the spending power of this community. It's enormous. I think the number was like $400 billion a year or something like that. Yeah. The size of the spending power of South Asians in the U.S. is essentially half a trillion dollars. And people don't know that. So they keep on saying, oh, you're six million people. Like, how do we care? Why do we care? And I was like, okay, well, if you don't really care because, I don't know, you don't have a heart, you don't think our stories are important, well, and you're super capitalistic, I then throw this number at them. And I'm like, well, did you know we have half a trillion dollars of spending power? That's not even wealth. That's not even assets. That's just spending power. Right. <laughs> and I think more and more companies are actually wisening up to that. And you're seeing that, right? You're seeing Netflix is the latest season of Bridgerton cast South Asian leads as, as a main lead. You're seeing so many more companies wisening up to this fact and wising up, sorry, wising up to this fact. But, you know, sometimes they do it and it doesn't feel authentic. Sometimes it feels like, ah, oh, let me just join the South Asian bandwagon. And I think there's a lot of ways to think about how to make it more authentic. And I also think about our own community, right? Where our community sometimes is, and look, I, I'm probably going to be in trouble for saying this, but our community sometimes they say, they're so excited to see it, but then sometimes they're not really helping it happen. And I think that that's something I also think about, which is like, how do I invigorate this community to realize, hey, this is so important. 
you also need to participate, whether it's by supporting these artists, um, writers, editors, journalists. Like over 85% of our writers um, and journalists and editors are people of color. Over 80% are women. And I think that one of the reasons I can get there, our business model is a subscription model, is because we can never convince advertisers. They were like, well, we're never going to have as many people because advertising is so determined by click-through rate and eyeballs. Well, we're not even trying to have the most eyeballs. We're trying to be very deep and nuanced for our community. And so we ended up going with the subscription model and asking the community to support us because they want to see more of it. And that's been a very interesting journey as well, where I'm like, look, if you want to keep seeing this, like we ended up going with DC because they helped us fund us in the beginning and they still are. But at one point, I'd love to see us be so sustainably just driven by our community that it's just exceedingly obvious. And we, we don't have to rely on external capital. We don't have to rely on what other people think our community is worth. That's hopefully a future we also see. I think it's brilliant. I think the model seems to be working for you. So that leads me back to the question of, okay, the company was founded, I think, in 2018. And I want to talk a little bit about that. I mean, you were able to attract some very high-profile funds, the Y Combinator, Precursor Ventures. And I'm curious about the pitch. What did you say to them that really put it over the top, that made it that that FOMO moment, right, the fear of missing out? Yeah, I, I think I have to talk about why Camp Combinator a bit because they were my first check. They really were. So I gave myself after I quit my job, I technically started the idea in 2018, but I truly launched the Juggernaut in 2019. And I've been working away on this idea for a few months. I quit my job. I had given myself five months of my personal savings as runway. And I remember pitching to a lot of VCs in New York and they were like, I don't get you. We burned our hands on BuzzFeed and, you know, Huffington Post and all these other companies. Like, this is going to be the same thing. And I was like, well, first of all, <laughs> and HuffPo and Vice and Aussie, none of these companies are even purporting to be in the same sphere of influence that I'm purporting to be on with the same target community at all. They're not even close. And we have a completely different business model. But I think VCs love to pattern match. And especially when you're a woman and a woman of color, they love to pattern match on the, let's not give them a benefit of the doubt side. And I, I see it happen all the time. It's my female founder friend. Going back to Y Combinator, I think that was the moment that led to all these other funds actually jumping on the bandwagon and having a FOMO moment because, you know, Y Combinator is viewed as one of the premier accelerator programs in the Valley. Right. And what I love about them, and I know they have plenty of controversy. I know that they don't have enough women founders, you know, all, all of that stuff. I recognize all of that. But one of the things I will give them is, you know, many of the things I will give them, but they do really great is when you show up and you have that 10 minute YC interview, they really are asking questions that are real, that they are really aiming to get to know you and your business. And the one North Star they have is, are you making something people want? Mm. I'm going to repeat that again. The one North Star they're measuring you on is, are you making something people want? And I showed up to my interview with, I had done an MVP where I did a newsletter and I showed up with my numbers. I showed up with my open rates. I showed up <laughs> with real customer testimonials. And they're like, well, we don't understand this. We don't understand the community. Nobody in the room who was interviewing me with a South Asian descent. But you clearly are making something people want because people are opening your emails, people are engaging with you, and these numbers are insane. Like, the engagement is insane. We don't get it, but you know what? We're going to fund you. Wow. And hmm. I think it takes that one person, it takes that one person to kind of what I call the first principle, which is not care about what anybody else is saying, not care about whether this industry is popular, not care about existing patterns, but just care about looking at the facts in front of you. It just takes that one person. And after they invested, honestly, that's what led to everybody else coming in. Because they're like, well, if Y season, like, I gotta come in because, you know, this is like, what do they know that I don't know, right? That's when the FOMO starts Got coming it. in. And I'll tell you what they know is 
they have the conviction to act alone. And I, I really wish more VCs had that. That's my PSA to all VCs. Like, just use first principles. Look at what's in front of you. Don't think too hard because especially at the early stages, you don't have much to go on. Like, this is different for growth stage investing. But for early stage investing, don't take it so seriously. Just like look at what's in front of you and try to make the best guess you can based on whether you think it's the product people are actually using. You know, such great insight. The courage that the VC showed that, all right, I don't want to trip over my own bias here. I may be missing something, but it was obvious to them that you had something real and it was going. So let me ask you the next question. That was pre-pandemic. It's March of 2022, and we all believe it's the beginning of the post-pandemic era. How did the pandemic affect your business? The pandemic was really difficult for so many businesses. And I think in some ways for us, we were very privileged that in some ways we were beneficiaries of COVID, right? When you think about what did well during COVID, it was things like home furnishings and Home Depot because everyone was at home and investing in their home. But it was also media and community because suddenly people didn't have in-person events. So they were turning increasingly online for media, for content, for community. And we grew a ton during COVID. We grew success to the point where we kept on breaking. <laughs> so if you want to keep the growth rate up, we're like, well, we now have to try different things. Okay. I know people really feel the need for community. How do I deliver that in spades? So we did lots of Instagram lives. We did lots of articles. We did a lot of things to make our community feel connected. And I think they responded to that. And I also think, you know, we went through Black Lives Matter as a community internationally. Mm. And I think that responding to that was also really important for our community and our team, which was how do we check and challenge the biases in the South Asian community? How do we become good allies and great allies? And I think that was also really important to cover during that time. Now, the juggernaut is described in many of the reps as a media company. So it's not just a publication. Do you see it growing bigger and broader in terms of the, the type of media that you bring to the community? Yeah, that's a great question. I was very specific in calling it media company and community, which is really funny. I don't view myself as a publication, which is also really funny. Hmm. I always tell people we're, you know, we're a media company and community. And what that means to me is that even if you look at our editorial, our goal is to bring you information to light, to entertain, to make you feel smarter, wiser, and also more connected. That last bit is so important. Mm. And what we want to expand into is we started with a free newsletter. We expand into original written articles. We did launch video in November. It's still fledgling. So if you want to support us, please check out our YouTube channel. <laughs> we started messing with a few more reels. We're probably going to do TikTok a bit more officially this year. And we also launched a podcast in January that's also free for everyone. And my ambitions are I'd love to have a TV and film studio someday, kind of like what the New York Times and other companies or Vox have done where, you know, they have a Vox Explained show or the Modern Love show. Sure. Because I think so many of our stories deserve to be told in multiple mediums so that we can meet people where they are instead of trying to shoehorn a story into just one format. And that's our ambition. That's our goal. And then on the event side, you met us through an event. Right. Our goal is, well, going back to we've always had a very tiny team. How do we raise more money and then invest in our community team? Can we hire an events manager? Can we hire a community team member? That's going to be very important for us as well as we grow and expand. I'd love for us to have chapters in New York and SF and Chicago and multiple places and just you know help bring our community together. That's a wonderful story. And it really sounds like a great future for the juggernaut. Uh, juggernaut, the word. The juggernaut. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but the juggernaut. But juggernaut, the word. I'm always curious as to what the genesis of the name or brand of any company is. And when I looked up the word juggernaut, you know, obviously I know it's a, a force or 
something that's unstoppable. But I didn't realize that the word was introduced to Europeans by Christian missionaries. You'll correct me, is Juggernaut, Lord of the World? Did I get that right? It, yeah, it, it goes back. That's right. It goes back in, in history. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the word and how you named the company. Yeah, I told this story a little bit, so I hope this isn't too repetitive. But I am a spelling bee nerd. I was a New York City spelling bee champion in 2001 and 2004 and went to nationals. And so when I wanted to name the company, I wanted to pick an English word that had South Asian roots. And many people are surprised that so many American English words have South Asian roots it's because of the deep colonial British history where they conquered our, our nation and stayed there as maybe not so welcome guests for hundreds of years. Right. <laughs> and so when you think about the words that we often say, like pajamas, that comes from South Asian roots. When you say punch, that comes from South Asian roots. Kamarban for a tuxedo, South Asian roots. I can go on and on. Mm. And so one of the words that I saw was available in terms of the domain was the juggernaut.com. And I was like, oh man, that's available. And I knew I wanted a the to be a little bit more serious, to be taken more seriously. I noticed there were two types of companies. It was either you went with, with an X or a the sound, like Axios, Course, Fox, Ozzy, or you went with like kind of like the the kind of formation, which is the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the New Yorker. And I kind of liked the the contract, the economist. And I wanted us to be close to there as opposed to young and hip, I guess. I guess we are also young and hip, but I wanted right. us to be taken a little bit more seriously. And so when I saw the juggernaut.com was available, I just picked it up. And what I also love about it is the story, which is you're hinting at it, but apparently a British man bastardized the word juggernaut, which means Lord of the World, he had seen a procession in Oria, which is now Orissa, and he saw a procession where somebody was carrying, you know, a large or following a large procession of a god for this big holiday, and he called it a juggernaut of an event, not realizing that people were saying juggernaut in reference to the god. The point where people are surprised that word has South Asian roots, they think it's kind of like astronaut or something else. It's like Greek or Latin, but it's not. I love the story because it got me curious as to why the juggernaut. And when I looked the word up, I realized it was like an aha moment for me, where its roots came from. So thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. A couple of questions for our listeners. What advice do you have for budding entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think my biggest advice for budding entrepreneurs, which is so hard to accept when you're first in the shoes, because I'd love to like go back and erase so not a race. I would. Love, I don't really have many regrets, but I'd love to go back and like tell my younger self so much advice. And I would say one of the first things is how do you count the nose as just one less obstacle to your yeses? I know it's a really weird reframing, but part of the job of founders is to see and hear a lot of no's and just view every one of them as like okay, one less meeting, one less obstacle until I get my yes. Because mathematically, you will get your yes. And it's really hard to see in the beginning, but you can set yourself up to go get that yes. And the best way to do that is to talk to customers, really understand what they need, really put yourself in their shoes, and try not to do things that are just opportunistic, because this is a journey that's going to last several years. So look for that deeper meaning you need to stay happy and fulfilled, especially during those hard days, especially during those hard no's. But yes, my biggest advice is you every single no as one less obstacle to your yes. Oh, that's great advice. And so one last wrap-up question for you. What is the one word that describes who you are? Ooh. <laughs> that's such a tough question. 
I will say, I'll say two different words. I know that's cheating, <laughs> but I'll say a word that one of my friends once used for me, which is indefatigable, which is I have unlimited energy. I have infinite energy. And I think I have infinite energy because this is such a problem I want to see solved. Like I really, really want media to get our stories right. And I really want there to be a community for my kids. For, I don't have any kids, but for my future kids and for me to tap into, I really want to see those support structures get built up so that we all feel that we have that community as we build it, as we kind of can be happy for each other, as we support each other. And so sometimes I try to say, you know, I'm unstoppable because I just want to keep going and keep fighting for what we believe in. Ah, brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us. I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of it. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And I'm so excited to see so many more New York entrepreneurs. This is an amazing city. And I think I'd love to keep seeing us succeed here. Wonderful. Thanks. Coming from India and growing up in New York, Snigna noticed a disconnect between the stories she heard at home and how her community was portrayed in school and in the media. Using those formative experiences and career knowledge, Snigna built a compelling case for the juggernaut and began pitching venture capital funds. Starting with some New York-based firms, Snigna noted how VCs like to pattern match and place your idea in a bucket for a particular market. Although the comps used to evaluate the pitch were dissimilar, she took the nose in stride. As she said, count the noses just one less obstacle to your yeses. But once she was able to secure funding from the Y Combinator Venture Fund, she could then more confidently raise funding elsewhere, having created the fear of missing out, the FOMO moment for others that followed. A self-described spelling bee word nerd, Snigna chose Joggernaut, an English word with South Asian roots, and added the in front to give the Joggernaut a perceived gravitas like the New York Times or the Washington Post. Snigna sees the Joggernaut as more than a publication. As she stated, so many of our stories deserve to be told in multiple mediums, instead of just trying to shoehorn a story into just one format. She's already embarked on a YouTube channel, a podcast, and will likely launch on TikTok later this year. And that one word that describes who she is? Snigda sees herself as indefatigable, persisting in the face of adversity, with infinite energy, being tireless and inexhaustible. She's focused on making sure South Asian stories are done right and creating a sense of community for the next generation. We thank Snigda for sharing her experiences and valuable insights. This podcast is executive produced by John Rebecki and New York Institute of Technology in conjunction with the School of Management and the Office of Strategic Communications and External Affairs. The Director of Professional Enrichment and producer of this podcast is Deborah Cohn. Our marketing and social media strategist is Petra Shantaraga. Our audio editor and mixer is Brian Falk from Abacus Entertainment. Special thanks to Constance Talatia and Paulina Lamanier for all their support. Until next time.